And for today's main event, Mary Norris is in conversation with her friend, Gregory Maguire, about her second and latest book, Greek to Me. Mary joined the editorial staff of The New Yorker in 1978. She's been a copy editor and proofreader there um, for more than 30 years. Originally from Cleveland, Ohio, she lives in New York and Rockaway. In 2015, Mary spoke here in conversation with the editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster about her first book, the um, New York Times bestseller, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. In preparing to introduce her then, I learned that pencils are among her passion, and I knew she was going to fit in very well here at the Athenaeum. Uh, Gregory has written several dozen books for children and another dozen novels for adults. His best-known work is Wicked, which inspired the musical now in its 15th year on Broadway. He contributes to the Sunday New York Times Book Review and has been an advocate for children and their books for most of his professional life. His most recent novel for adults is Hidden Sea, a tale of the once and future nutcracker. A silver lining to the April showers we are enduring is the chance to read and daydream. Mary takes us to the land of ouzo and olive trees. Uh, the Washington Post wrote that Greek to me leaves readers feeling salt-kissed and freshly tanned. Um, we'll hear about our own Athena, whom she calls a template for a liberated woman, and the inside story of her... Um, of Gregory's appearance in her book, please join me in warmly welcoming them to the Athenaeum. Calimera. Calimera, Gregorio. Grigori. <clears throat> we are very happy to be here, but we are not in the practice of putting our friendship on display, <laughs> often not even to each other, <laughs> because we don't see one another very often or often enough. Uh, as terrifying as it is to speak in such an august and dignified room, it is worth the terror to spend 45 minutes or an hour with my dear friend and yours soon to be, Mary Norris. Mary is known to you as the Kama Queen, and if you have read her book, Adventures of a Kama Queen, Between You and Me, the proper title, and have not yet checked out Mary speaking on YouTube, then you still have quite a few treats and treasures in store for you. And I recommend that right away. In fact, if you don't like what we're saying, you can probably get Wi-Fi and go check her out in the lobby. Uh, it is wonderful to see Mary again on the occasion of Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen, and... I'm not going to ask too many questions, but I want to start with, with one or two. Uh, this is billed as a, as a conversation rather than as an interview, but I can't help. For those of you who read Between You and Me, Adventures of a Comma Queen, <laughs> you will remember the conclusion where Mary talks about her love affair with pencils that was referred to 
in the introduction. Uh, so I was just saying to Mary in the, in the antechamber that when I lived in London, I would sometimes go to hear authors interviewing each other at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in the mall. And one evening, it was Russell Hoban, author of Ridley Walker and Bedtime for Francis and many other great works of Western literature, interviewing the Canadian novelist. I never remember if it's Robertson Davies. Is it Robertson or Robinson? Robertson Davies. And I thought, these are two of, two of the writers, Himalayan landscapes of accomplishment. What is going to be the first question that Russell Hoban poses to Robertson Davies? And I perched on the edge of my chair, and I gripped my notebook, and I prepared to be enlightened about the mystery of creation. And Russell Hoban said, Robertson Davies, do you write with a pencil or a pen? <laughs> this might just be a throwaway joke, except for Mary Norris, who loves pencils. It's an actual question. So I want to start by asking you not about your writing career, not about your ascendancy onto the New York Times bestseller list, but I would like you to talk about 15 minutes of writing, and what happens at some 15-minute period when you get started? 15 minutes. Hmm. Um, let's see. Probably I will check my email <laughs> for 10 minutes of that time. <laughs> if I actually am on some kind of deadline under pressure to produce and I need to write something down, I'll start with the pencil and a legal pad, usually. Um, I have a lot of little notebooks that friends have given me and that I keep journals in, and these are a little restrictive, those little notebooks. You know, They're fine for a travel journal, but if you're actually trying to write a chapter on the alphabet, say, uh, you need something bigger. <laughs> um, so the first 15 minutes are uh, ice. The I, what, what works best for me is writing on pencil, writing in pencil without stopping. Um, when I had the pleasure of staying at your house in Vermont once, on the way there, I had stopped to see the Noah Webster house in Connecticut, um, where Noah Webster was born. It's now a museum, and it's a pokey little museum. Um, where Webster was born and there's nothing of his there. And the um, docents, the one that I had, had really weird hair. I think he was trying, uh, you know, trying for an impersonation of Noah Webster's hair. Um, and he, he, the main thing he wanted to get across was that Webster had married above his station and it was a terrible mistake. <laughs> so I wondered what personal... Um, Axe he was grinding there. But but I got to your house and I just wrote on a legal pad everything that had happened at that museum. And what always happens to these things that I write, every detail of, is I'll hand this to an editor, my editor, and he'll send it back with one line um, emphasized to say, you might start with this. And then, you know, and so all of that 
is shorn away and I have to give it some point. And, you know, it can't really... The finished product differs vastly from that first draft. I, I suppose when I, you know, I'm, I'm really not being uh, facetious in asking about pencil or pen. I do remember uh, reading, I think it was, uh, uh, an H.L. Mencken review of a book he didn't admire, where he said, this sounds as if it was written on a typewriter by a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, even the tools of the trade are significant to consider long before you decide how they are being employed. I, for instance, going into a museum, if there's an exhibit of Turner and there are some glass cases in the middle of the room and there are some Turner sketchbooks, I'm always just as interested in the trying out of colors and brush strokes on the left-hand side as the finished work on the right. That, that kind of moment of, what do I do with this, is a tremendous moment to me. And so I think Russell Hoban was correct, and so was I in asking about the pencil. Uh, now, I have known Mary for 30-some years, and while I don't know a hair as much about Greece or the Greek language as Mary does, it is true that we met in Greece. We became friends at a school in Greece where Mary was uh, basically at the PhD level and I was in kindergarten. This is not <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, but we, we, we clung to one another almost right away when we, when we began to realize we were both uh, feeling a little bit uh, daunted by people who spoke much better Greek than we did and a little bit charmed and enchanted by the accident of being middle-aged and still believing we could learn something. Uh, and and it, has, it has been a suitable foundation for a friendship. So now I want to turn and ask you, Mary, how... I know how you got interested in Greek, and so will you when you read the book, if you haven't read it yet. But I want to know how you, uh, how you made the decision to turn your lifelong love of Greek culture and of the Greek language into a gift for us, a personal odyssey. That, too, is another moment of transition. That's an act of scraping the paintbrush or sharpening the noisy pencil and making a, a decision to give a gift. How did you get from studying Greek 30 years ago to having a book about it? Well, 30 years ago, when I first started studying Greek, I wanted to write about it. I had um, a few... I made a few attempts at writing travel essays. And when I started studying ancient Greek, I was so taken with Socrates that I wanted to drop everything and write something so that everyone would know about Socrates. And, you know, then I realized I probably wasn't the first one to think <laughs> of that and that I should have a little more of a background in Greek before I attempted it, and then I was daunted by the idea of having to read everything everyone had ever written before I could say, this guy is really smart, this Socrates, you don't like him a lot. Um, 
So I, I made some trips to Greece. I think we met on my third trip to Greece in um, the suburb of Panorama, or Panorama, which is above Thessaloniki. And by that time, I was pretty well confused because ancient Greek, which I started studying after I started studying modern Greek, is just different enough for you to sound like a real idiot if you accidentally speak ancient Greek in modern Greece. Um, what happened, I got, I got distracted. I moved on to Italy at some point and tried to study, studied Italian, and I hoped that the way modern Greek led me to study ancient Greek, Italian would lead me finally to study Latin, and that has not happened yet. I keep <laughs> hoping to come in the back door of Latin and then everything will be crystal clear and I'll die happy. Um, <clears throat> but what happened was I, I got this other uh, I, daily life took me in another direction, and I ended up getting a book out of my day job, the book about commas. And while I was working on that book, I was offered um, a place on a press trip to Greece. Somebody I knew at Town and Country um, had somebody on this trip who, who had to drop out, and he called me, and it took me about eight seconds to decide whether I could take this person's place on a free trip to Greece. Uh, but I was working on the comma book, the comma queen book, and I knew my editor would disapprove. I also had, um, this is a little off the wall, but it was 2012, and that um, Hurricane Sandy had just come through and just, you know, pretty much destroyed this little neighborhood I have a bungalow in in Rockaway. So there were two major reasons for me to stay home, write the book, fix up the bungalow. Um, but I, I went to Greece anyway. And to make up for it, I spent a few hours every day writing about the Greek alphabet words that uh, I call, thought of it as an ABC Darian for the barbarian. You know, <laughs> Alpha is for Athena. Phi is for phage, yogurt, and feta, cheese. I was trying to demonstrate how much Greek people know already, even though they don't know it. And I wrote all this thinking, I'll, I'll work this into the book about uh, copy editing. And so, you know, I gave it to my editor, and um, there are, there is in the index an entry for Greek in between you and me, and there are about 20 items. Area, you know, etymology, you can't even think of writing about English without writing about etymology and getting into Greek. And um, a bit about Aristophanes, who came up when I was writing about my mother, of all things. Um, both of them are in the chapter on profanity. <laughs> so... But anyway, all of that fell away, but when it was time to write a second book, it was my editor who said, would you like to write a book about Greek? Would I? Yes. And I had every note I'd ever kept. They had two big boxes. That one, of them, one of them said modern Greek, the other said Greek drama. And I rated them. I went to Greece. Um, a lot of time, a lot of the time, those two pieces, two of the travel pieces that I wrote, one was called The Sacred Way, about walking the sacred way between Athens and Eleusina, and another was a long, quirky piece on visiting Cyprus on my first trip. Those became the basis of two chapters in the book. And then my notebooks from um, reading Antigone, my scripts from being in Greek plays, 
in Greek, in, uh, in ancient Greek at Columbia. When I started studying a dead language, I missed all those little games you play when you're studying a language, you know, French shopkeepers and things. And, and I saw this notice for auditions for Euripides, Electra, and ancient Greek. I was like, that's it. That's as close as I'm going to come as a conversation class in ancient Greek. So <clears throat> I had piles of notes on these and, you know, my um, scripts for those. So, you know, a lot of it, though, was still, you know, breathing life into these old embers took, um, took a lot of faith is what it took that, you know, I could ignite it again. Well, I, I will remind you that I'm half Greek, and I want you to remember that when I say, you make Greek sound so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's such, you, your, your, your passion for how close the words are to the experience of life in contemporary Greece and to the long-lost experience of life in ancient Greece. Your passion is a kind of um, spyglass. It's a kind of set of mirrors that shows us, even those of us who have loved etymology our whole lives, you know, flunked French, but loved etymology, those of us who care about it can see in, in the focal depth of where you stand to the language itself and, and its capacity to scrutinize what it is looking at. We are, we are refreshed by it. Uh, it. It made me think of one of the few Greek words of great interest that you didn't actually mention in this book, I think. And I have seen this word written with two different pronunciations, so I rely on you right now to correct me. Uh-oh. Is it philotimo or philotimo? I bet there's a, a Greek in the audience. Who can give us, <laughs> which one is it? Philotimo. philotimo. <laughs> That's what I thought, but don't trust Google for everything. <laughs> uh, the, the, the concept of philotimo is, is sort of like this concept in your book, I think. And when I remembered that word, I thought, I want to make sure that I raise this because it will make me sound smart. And also because it is a metaphor for how I, how I regard what you have done in this book. The word means, it's such a Greek word, it means love of honor. Love of honor. Trust the Greeks not just to have a word for honor, but to have a word for the love of honor. And your book is a book about the love of language and the way that language does illuminate, does, uh, there's, there's a Greek word for, the, the, the word for fantasy comes from Greek, and it comes, means to shine upon. And your book shines upon the language and the reader, the, the very close proximity between the language and the experience of living Greek. Is that the nicest thing that you're going to hear about this book on your I whole tour? I think so. I mean, I think, oh my, if that's true, I really am good. <laughs> I, 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 feel, I feel that it is true, and that is not friendship talking. That's, that's me as a lover of Greece and, and as a, a sometime critic talking. I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic uh, contribution to our species 
ability to cherish the language that connects us. And so I really do admire that. I'm trying to think of the word for, if there's a word for love of honor, there must be a word for love of language, right? Philoglossia or yeah. philologia, I guess. Phil philology is yeah, the, yeah. the one that we use. Yes. Yeah, yeah, philologia, yeah. Love of tongue is what <laughs> I just said. Right, right. <laughs> don't trust me. Uh, um, we we do, we do not have um, we do not have similar experiences in translation, and I know that you know the individual, the, the, you know the building blocks of the language. You know, uh, you know, you know hordes of original words. You've You've unpacked the alphabet in its alphabet blockedness for us. But I wonder about, has that given you a capacity to translate? And have you the avarice to do so? Surely you don't mean that translators make a lot of money. <laughs> because that is not the case. Um, I just really love seeing... I love taking apart the words. I love it's what you're saying about my approach to it is a bit true in that I kind of hold the words up to the light to see what's what I can see through them, mm -hmm. and um, which which reminds me of this word where um, there's a reference to Gregory in my book where I am talking about the word rhapsody. Rhapsode is the, rhapsodos is the ancient Greek word for the teller of tales, the singer of songs, the, the Homeric poets who went around singing. And, you know, the epics are really long and nobody would presume to recite the entire Iliad or the entire Odyssey after dinner one night. I have a theory, actually, that the epics are supposed to be a little boring because they're supposed to make you go to sleep afterward, right? <laughs> so, um, But this word, rhapsodos, it's where we get our word rhapsody. The word rhapsos meant stitcher. And odos is song. So a rhapsode was a stitcher of songs, and for some reason the the Greek for the Greek word for tailor stuck with me, and that's raftis, raftis. And um, once when we were in Thessaloniki in this lovely hotel in Panorama, Gregory was in the lobby sewing a button on something, and the word came to me, and I was so pleased to be able to say, oh, raftis. <laughs> And thus began my literary career. <laughs> but it's an important literary word because um, my my editor, who is very important in the making of this book, also ref has referred to himself as a tailor because you know I'm the one who weaves the cloth. Maybe I rough cut it, but the editor is the person who fits it, who cuts it to fit, and does all takes all the tucks out of it takes all your favorite things out of it, in fact. <laughs> or many of them. But you emerge looking very good in this suit. And, and you do. Uh, I want to remind you of uh, the time at the end of our three or four weeks of studying. We were not in the same class, as I have pointed out. Uh, the various uh, national groups in this international summer school were approached by the head of the school and said, it is our tradition 
at the end of every summer session to have a dinner and each national contingent will do something traditional and representative of their home culture. Maybe the Belgians will get on the stage and make waffles. Uh, the Spanish will play flamenco guitar, and there were different things. Well, I believe that the American contingent was the largest contingent among the students that year. And uh, Mary and I both hung back, and we waited for somebody to say, well, the Americans will do this. But Americans being Americans, nobody volunteered. And uh, I began to get nervous because I'm a middle child. And I thought, what if, what a shame upon the nation if every national group has a contribution to make except the group that's the largest, the Americans. It will look as if we are looking down upon our neighbors and friends. All we had was the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that we had. So I prepared an emergency performance. And I waited, hoping that some of the sprightly young things would leap up and, you know, do the twist or something. Uh, but nobody did, and then there began to be catcalls around from the Belgians who said, <laughs> what, the Americans aren't going to do anything? They're too big for their britches over here. And I finally leapt to my feet at the table at which we were sitting together, and I said, in the tradition, in the American tradition of individualism, I and I alone will provide <laughs> the American contribution for the evening. I will translate for you with my three weeks worth of, of Greek, a great American tune. And then I sang, I will not sing for you here, but I sang Summertime. And I, I translated it as, Kalo Kaili Keizoe Ine Efkolo, Psaria Kanunbanyo and then I forget the last word it was. But the translation is basically the closest I could come in three weeks of Greek, which was summertime, life is easy, the fish are having a bath, and the trees are tall. <laughs> your father has a lot of small change, and your mother is very beautiful, so runaway kid, don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it well, and it was very beautiful. Carlo Carey. You're right. <laughs> yes, it's beautiful. But we won't go on. Uh, when I was reading this book, because I love... Mary's relish for language. I started turning down pages of things that I wanted to ask her about in Greek. But then I came to the American word playtex. <laughs> and for some reason, that's when I brought this book into the Athenaeum. I thought, I want to ask you about playtex. <laughs> is that still a word? And is it from the Greek? Well, this is to contrast English with Greek. Playtex is not a sexy word. 
Um, it is a brand of girdle that my mother wore, I believe, and it comes up in the chapter on Aphrodite because I was, I spent my life fighting the idea that I would have to wear a girdle every day of my life. I did not want to be like my mother. Um, but tex is certainly a Greek-derived word, right? Technique, technica. Uh, play would be pure Anglo-Saxon, I think. Or <laughs> Maybe that's as far as we should go. I see people. <laughs> um, I, I do want to say one thing about my own personal love of Greek language and Greek culture. I was, I've been there twice in the last three weeks. So uh, I consider at least to have gotten a lot of traveling points. Um, in my book, Hidden Sea, which is my last adult novel, the subtitle being A Tale of a Once-in-Future Nutcracker, I put what little I feel I've contributed of thinking about Greek culture into fiction. And my one brief thesis that powers this particular story is that the fairy tales of northern Greece are all the bastard descendants of the Greek myths. And that Athena, in her beauty, in her all-knowingness, in her capacity to confer upon Odysseus a disguise that is so true that his wife and his son and his father can't recognize him, is really the fairy godmother who does the same for Cinderella, confer upon her a disguise that's so true that her family cannot rescue her. Whenever things get a little sticky in terms of plot points, Athena shows up to help out, just like a fairy godmother. And the monsters in fairy tales very clearly have zip codes in Greece where they get, where they get their mail for the rest of the year. That's my little uh, contribution, and I rest my case. <laughs> but it was, it, it's lovely to think about what the Iliad and the Odyssey have given upon us. They have a, a, a wave upon which we still surf. It's so true. I had um, an experience a few weeks ago where I appeared in Dallas, Texas with the writer Madeline Miller, who is the author of Circe, which has done so well. And she treats Circe like a hero um, of the stature of Odysseus, gives her a whole book in which Odysseus is just a chapter, just one episode. And I realized um, while I was preparing to be on the same bill with her, she would read, I would read, that whereas her approach was to take the myth and embroider it with details, beautiful details, lots of details, very imaginative details, my approach was to go to Greece and go to some hotel with a crabby landlady and crack her open and get mythology out of her, damn it. <laughs> So we had completely opposite approaches. <laughs> I bet it made for a lively evening. <laughs> She's a wonderful writer, too. Um, I, I don't know what time it is. I know at a certain point we're going to open up for questions. Uh, and I'm trying to think if there's... I, I, I know Mary's traveled a great deal more in Greece than I have. I may have been there as often, but I go to the same places. I go to visit my relatives, and I go to Athens, and one or two islands that are as close to the mainland 
as possible. But Mary has traveled all over, and all the, she has swum in all the seas of Greece and seen uh, sunrises and sunsets across every imaginable water. Well, you, you flatter me, but it does point to a difference in travels of style. There are people who go to one place and stay there and soak it up, and there are people who need to see everything within a 500-mile radius. And I'm, I'm the latter, yeah. and I think you're the former. I think I'm the former, but I can only claim one... Uh, I can only best you in one regard in terms of our Greek travels, which is that I got permission to go to Mount Athos. Oh. Uh, oh. And I had to declare uh, with some honesty that... Well, not much honesty... Um, that I was Greek Orthodox. I figured that, although I was actually Catholic, my birth mother had been Greek Orthodox for the first seven or eight months of her life before she became a Catholic. And so it must confer, like Judaism, it must confer down through the maternal line. So I wrote and said I was, I was Greek Orthodox and could I have an invitation. I got an invitation to this peninsula to the in between Thessaloniki in the north and Constantinople in Istanbul. Uh, and I, I went uh, on a bus and I went to the village from which uh, those who were making pilgrimages could depart by boat to go down the west side of the peninsula and then land at the capital city and have your papers stamped by a prelate, by a bishop. Um, and I went to the town, my Greek so poor, that I asked where the boat was that went to the, the capital city, capital village, uh, I forget what it was called right now, and some crabby landlady pointed out the boat, and there it is. I went down, there were two fishermen or boaters, what do you call people who run boats? Sailors. Thank you, two sailors. <laughs> It's so helpful to know somebody who knows language so deeply. Uh, there were two sailors on the boat, and they were squaring things away. And I asked, you know, in my halting Greek, does this go to where I want to go? And they said, nah, nah, which means yes, yes. So I went in and sat down and thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll wait. You know, and I looked at my watch a couple of times, as we ought to be doing right now. And they started talking to me in Greek. Now, I can say, but because I can say I don't speak Greek doesn't mean that people believe you if you can say it with a, with a halfway decent accent. So they kept gesturing to me, gesticulating and, and pointing at their watches. And I kept saying, it's all right. I don't speak Greek. I'll just wait. I'm not in a hurry. I have my little notebook. I'll take notes. I'll do a little drawing. Would you like me to sing you a little song? I wasn't in any hurry. <laughs> Finally, they just left the boat. And I realized... Oh, it, it goes tomorrow. <laughs> so then I, I waited until they were out of sight before I left the boat. <laughs> and I got, I got to Manathos and I spent five days there hiking around uh, on this peninsula where it is said no women are allowed. One morning I did ask the monk who served the poached eggs where the <laughs> eggs had come from. And he said... It's a holy mystery. <laughs> so we don't have enough time for holy mystery in our lives, and I feel I've talked too much. What would you like to tell us about this book that I have not yet found a way to uh, make you talk about? 
Well, I just, you made me think about the holy mystery. Um, and I, there is actually a mistake in the book where I, I think I say that on Mount Athos that no females, no biological females are allowed, not even a hen. Um, or maybe I said not even a cat. I think I've revised it to be right in my mind. But they, re, the monks revised it and allowed cats because there were rats if there aren't any cats but I do I did understand that there were not hens and that if you do go to Mount Athos take eggs with you and you'll be very welcome <laughs> well I think that's about all the time we have for right now although we're going to be signing some books I think if people would like to thank you Gregory uh, thank, thank you, you so much for joining me and thank you all